The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, March 12th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And we now have the dumbest scandal of 2019 so far, so far. And we have had a couple dumb ones. Remember AOC dancing in college? That was in 2019. We had the governor of Virginia not knowing if he was the Klansman or if he was Al Jolson and then deciding to break the tie by a break dance. But that, not as dumb as this. This was the cover of yesterday's New York Post, not today. So I guess I'm a day late and a dollar short, but this scandal is so bankrupt and outside the time-space continuum, it does not matter. Mayor, Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, mayor in flap over perv star and inset a picture of R. Kelly. So what is the R. Kelly B. de Blasio overlap? Listen to this. Here's what happened. De Blasio has been traveling around the country in the deluded pursuit of the presidency. He wound up in South Carolina the other day. And there, in an all-black church, the choir began to sing. And here is what they eventually got to singing. Now, that does sound like I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. I mean, it's certainly getting there. It eventually kicks in in an unmistakable way. Yeah, it's definitely I Believe I Can Fly. And that, I didn't end it abruptly. I mean, it, it's not me. It's my producer, Daniel. But he didn't do anything wrong. That's just where the video cuts off. It's the only extant video of de Blasio, supposedly being in a flap over a perv star. So they were playing R. Kelly in a church. Seems kind of scandalous. Headline of the Post was not 50 parishioners in a church sing R. Kelly. It had to do with hand gestures. Always the gestures. Because as the congregation heard the words, they began to flap. Not a hands under the armpit in Commedia dell'arte chicken dance style. No, a slow, languorous creating of soft waves in the swimming pool type motion. And for the first four seconds of the video, de Blasio, who is closer to seven feet than six feet tall and has literally been compared to a certain avian celebrity by his political opponents. We're up to here with Big Bird. Let him go to Germany, to Hamburg. Let him go on a long vacation. Granted, that political rival was Bo Deedle, who is a frothing at the mouth lunatic. But there was the very large bird-like de Blasio, maybe but not really, starting to consider what perhaps an observer might deem an arm flap. Now here, I'll play you the entire duration of the alleged flap. Let's go right back to the videotape. The flap took part during this part of the song. And de Blasio's arms rise no higher than his waist. And he barely beats them up and down three times. Not beats, just kind of a little movement. I believe he hears where the song is going and he immediately aborts. Or maybe he sees the parishioners and the choir and figures, this is kind of a goofy motion for a man of my stature, literal and figurative. But these scandals, scandals, this is called a scandal. So I'm going to rank the scandals at play here. One, R. Kelly was sung in a church. Two, a church choir flapped as part of an R. Kelly cover. Three, people anywhere actually believe they can fly. And four, B. 
Bill de Blasio thinks he can be president. Much further down the list, post the area of scandal, post even the area of barely notable, is Bill de Blasio quickly lifting his arms from his sides about four inches, or what you might do if you think your sleeves are bunching up. Now, it's not news, but here's the thing. On the front page of the other New York paper, the New York Times today, the second lead, if you know how to read the New York Times, the one on the left side, was about Trump's budget. And I do think that's as imaginary as this flap. I read all the content about how Trump, after promising over and over to protect Medicare, puts out a budget that would gut Medicare for 2019 fiscal year. He called for $550 billion in cuts to Medicare. In 2020, he would reduce Medicare spending by $845 billion. And then Medicaid and subsidies for the ACA would be cut by $770 million, according to estimates of the Center of Budget and Policy Priorities. But this is imaginary. The budget is sometimes called a wish list. It's less than that in Trump's hands. It's a propaganda enabling mechanism. Because this way, what happens is he can propose his massive slashes. They will inevitably get ignored. And he gets to say, I never broke my promise about protecting Medicare. And he also gets to say, once the budget deficit gets out of control, hey, I proposed a bunch of cuts. The other guys rejected them. And I really can't say that any of that has more real world consequence than Bill de Blasio attempting to achieve flight. On the show today, scandal, outrage, actresses, bribery, colleges. For $500,000, we'll get your kid into Stanford as a long snapper. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have a high school football team. We could say he's a kicker. That actually happened. That's the kicker. But first, and this is an interview I was excited for for a long time. It's one of the best segments on television, Seth Meyers' A Closer Look. The late night host takes 7 to 15 minutes and does a deep dive at the desk, examining all manner of policy issues, Trump chicanery or Trump chicanery. Let's face it, there's a lot of Trump chicanery. So I'm joined next by the late night writer whose primary responsibility is the construction of these indispensable pieces of comedy and commentary. A closer look at Sal Gentile up next. A Closer Look is the recurring segment on Late Night with Seth Meyers, where the host takes us on a path, a journey. It's a mix of a monologue and a travelogue, I guess, where information is imparted, jokes are made. And I do believe, especially amongst the audience, a lot is learned. So I think of it like a spiel, but imagine a spiel being a lot less self-indulgent and a lot less about Mike Pesca and punchier and filled with visuals. So what I'm saying is it's not a spiel. Why? Why is this? Well, I'll tell you. Amber Ruffin, who's a writer for Late Night, was here, and I was quelling about A Closer Look, and she said, oh, that's all one guy. That's Sal Gentile. It's, it's that thing called by some the Mandela effect. You never hear it, then you hear it over and over. I just kept hearing the name Sal Gentile, the guy, the genius, who writes these closer looks. I had to get him on. He's here. Hello, Sal. Hi. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Were you hired as a writer or for this specific job? So I was actually, I started the show as a segment producer when it when it launched. Uh, Meaning what, mostly comedy-related segments? 
No, I was producing interviews. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was primarily doing interviews uh, with politicians and uh, uh, or if we had like comedy guests. Because um, you have a, you have a background in journalism and yeah. writing for yes. kind of niche city publications. Yes, yeah. I have a very bifurcated past, which is that I was at the same time doing like day jobs in journalism and at night doing comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Yeah. And I literally had those two like paths and yeah. they just like converged in this job. So you were hired as a segment producer, and w- was he doing these segments uh, from the jump? Not originally. So, and that was kind of part of my evolution at the show, which is that sort of naturally as the show evolved into 2015, Seth just started asking for my help, and I started pitching ideas. Um, and originally, we started doing segments at the desk that were talking about news uh, stories that we weren't even calling a closer look. We would sort of individually give them names. For example, I remember one was very fun, um, and this is the pre-Trump era, we did one on the Greek debt crisis, and we called that segment Up Shits Greek. Um, <laughs> which, uh, and then eventually, uh, we just sort of landed on branding them as a recurring segment uh, called A Closer Look. And, and is this when he had eschewed the stand-up monologue by then? Because he started off standing up, and then he just went yeah, to the desk only. It, it, it coincided actually almost perfectly with my transition from being a secretary to being a writer. Mm-hmm. In, um, in, uh, that was in August 2015. And that right. was basically about the time when we started branding these exclusively as a closer look consistently. So you literally dragged Seth Meyers down. Down, <laughs> down to the desk. From stand up to seated. Yes. yes. So you brand them a closer look. And this is before even Trump is the dominant political figure. But you knew you'd have a lot of political news because uh, the races were the political race was heating up. Exactly. Um, uh, we we sensed that that was happening. Obviously, Trump uh, announced his candidacy in, in the summer of 2015. So we did talk about Trump occasionally at that time. Um, and uh, we definitely had the sense that this was going to be a dominant thing. And it was something that Seth was very interested in. And so it just made natural sense for us to make it a recurring part of the show and for me to focus exclusively on it. Because it would give the audience more sustenance to have one topic that you developed with a number of jokes because everyone else does bing, bing, bing monologue. What about it was Seth drawn to? Because if you think a weekend update, it it wasn't the case that there'd be one topic where he talked for five minutes. Totally. Well, I think we learned, one of the most gratifying things about what we learned is, because originally these segments were not, now they tend to be at least 10 minutes to 12 minutes. Sometimes we've done occasionally even like a giant news story when James Comey got fired we did like a 14-minute closer look. Yeah. Um, they did not start out that long. And what we... the gradu- Luckily, by the way, at 14 minutes, you it, you go past the president's uh, attention span. So you're safe. That's, like the <laughs> that, safe that's right. That's how we make sure. <laughs> that's right. The back half of that, say whatever you we want. We save the worst stuff for like... <laughs> that's right. We know he's got maybe two to three minutes tops. Um, uh, and, uh, but the gratifying thing we learned is like people have a, uh, there's just a strong demand and an attention span for these kinds of, for this kinds of in-depth comedy analysis of the news. And yeah. people were watching the whole thing. And then, and so rather than shy away from going in-depth on something, uh, it, it gave us the confidence to know we could do it. It is nice that the nitrification of media uh, gives a little, takes a little, but with 80 late night shows, I mean, there are really a lot fewer than that. It's good. You don't have to do what everyone else is doing. I'm sure that if it was just the age of Johnny Carson or then the age of uh, Letterman and Leno, there'd be someone there saying, you can't do this. You're losing the audience. We have to be broadcaster. No one wants 14 minutes on James Comey. But now, yeah, yeah, they do. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Um, Which uh, (laughs) is a sentence I never thought I'd say. People want 14 minutes on James Comey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they do. And it is totally such a gratifying thing about the sort 
sort of nitrification of media. And like, there's so many different voices and everyone's going to choose. There's, by the way, there's no shortage of shortage of news topics for people to focus on, as we know. And so that is like a very comforting thing about how many different shows with different sensibilities and voices there are. Like everyone's going to have something different to chew Mm -hmm. on and go in depth on. And so there's room for uh, different people to take on different aspects of what's happening in the You're not even the most in-depth thing out there in comedy. John Oliver (laughs) does, you know, longer segments than you on much more boring topics. (laughs) It's incredible. I cannot believe... I know so many writers on that show, and the skill that it requires to do 20 minutes on civil asset forfeiture, right. for example, is right. crazy. Yeah. And they do it. It's incredible. And I find myself, I'm watching them, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm in minute 18 of a comedy segment on civil asset forfeiture, but I am. And I, and it's uh, and, and it's held my attention span the entire time. Yeah. And John Oliver really proved that people have, like, a craving and attention span for going in-depth on something yeah. as long as 20 minutes. Well, it's almost too long. Now you got Alex Jones blaring on for 40 minutes, or you have, like, not the new version of 9-11 truthers and anything. <laughs> right, right. Under 30 minutes is you're selling out the cause. Right. I just got into it with the MMT guys, so <laughs> this chafes. So uh, I want to play um, a couple of jokes, a couple of uh, bits that you did in a recent Closer Look. And this was, I think it aired the Monday after Trump had that crazy press conference. Let me narrow it down. That crazy long press <laughs> conference where he was doddering and rambling. Again, terribly unspecific. <laughs> the one where he announced uh, the emergency powers to build the wall. And he did this thing. And we will have a national emergency and we will then be sued and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Just like the ban, they sued us in the Ninth Circuit, and we lost, and then we lost in the appellate division, and then we went to the Supreme Court, and we won. So it's very sing-song, and I think every late-night comic made some sort of joke about that. So, you compare him to, well, here's Seth's joke. He sounds like a five-year-old telling you what he saw at the zoo. <laughs> Funny. How'd you land on that? Um, I, For me, it just, that sounded like what I hear children <laughs> say all the time. Yeah. I mean, like... And then I did uh, this. Yes, exactly. Um, it was the most immediate thing that occurred to me, because I know I want to make some sort of point in Closer Look. And I'm just not sure what's going to work. And I'll write like, you know, multiple pages of jokes there and hoping at least one or two of them is going to work in the in the test uh, rehearsal. And, and were, they, were the jokes about different things it sounded like? Yes. Like you can't commit both to being, sounds like, well, maybe you could. It sounds like a five-year-old at the zoo. Or it sounds like when you forget your homework uh, and are making up what happened in Huck Finn or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, well, sometimes I will just try different angles on things. So I did put like, I think I had like, a couple different alts in there and we landed on that one. Now there are other there are other setups that you do that if we didn't know we were watching a late night comedy show, it would be precisely in line with a very fair news analysis. So at one point you talk about how right-wing pundits are dictating his behavior and it's in service of a setup, but Again, you know, it doesn't have to be. There is a real information imparting that's going on in this whole thing. Totally. Um, in the early days of the Trump Trump administration, before he even was president, when he was president-elect, like, a sort of person I had in, in, in mind of, like, who was watching these was, like, somebody who, like— 
tries to pay attention to the news, but like, you know, it's hard. They have, everyone's got their own obligations throughout the day. Maybe they check Facebook or Twitter occasionally and then they go home or they maybe like turn on CNN really quick to see like what's happening. And you'd see something along the lines of like somebody like Kellyanne Conway or somebody going on and saying like, you know, everybody knows that like uh, uh, Trump solved the birther problem. Yeah, like he yeah. stopped it. And uh, so, and then the anchor would just be like, no, no, that's not true. And Kellyanne Conway would be like, yo, no, yes, yes, it is. Like the sky is green and Trump uh, stopped the birther. Right, right. And they would be like this head spinning, disorienting thing of like these people are now in power. Like it was one thing to maybe dismiss them as cranks, but like these guys serve the president elect and then the president and you're like for most people that's like this crazy disorienting head spinning thing and so I just figured like one service we can at least provide through comedy mm-hmm. is to just say unflinchingly what's the case and it goes back to that thing earlier of like what you don't realize is when you're watching CNN you, it feels isolating like you're by yourself and you're watching Kelly and Conway say this thing and you're like yeah Does, is anyone else getting this like yeah. is anyone else seeing that this <laughs> is crazy nuts or is that? yes and exactly and clo- and at least we can provide the sort of like clarity and catharsis of watching it and being like, no, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. Like I can plant my feet on the ground of reality. And there's other people who are seeing the same insane stuff that I'm seeing. So a closer look could have been called, no, you're not crazy. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Now there is, this is not something you have to answer for, but it's just the thought that hit me that comedy depends on the truths being obvious. And so, so much of the comedy of Trump saying something outrageous, and it seems like he's bungling his way to jail and everyone watching it. And certainly Seth agrees with this and you agree with this. Like this is a disastrous uh, policy just in terms of self-preservation and he's going to be going down. But maybe he won't. I mean, maybe he won't. And maybe there are some more benign explanations for his policies. And it's not your responsibility to lead us down a path where we have this expectation that he's going down. But maybe you are. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've tried as much as possible to resist the temptation, first of all, to make predictions about what's going to happen to yeah. Donald Trump since we, I have been, everyone's been consistently yeah. wrong before. And in fact, didn't didn't Seth doing that exactly? Isn't that why we're in this mess in the first place? <laughs> At the correspondence dinner? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Obama was also there, so let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, that is a temptation, and I think everyone has to try to resist that temptation. I think one thing, especially, for example, in the Russia investigation, it's it's we can just sort of like descriptively say what is true about what we already know about the Russia investigation, which is already in itself damning and right. explain why it's damning without ma- without uh, going down the path of making like wild predictions about what it means or what could end up happening. Like, like making wild predictions about what will be in Mueller's report. Like we have no idea. It could just be a restatement of everything we know. But if it literally were just that, what we already know is really bad for X, Y, and Z reason. And so I think we try as much as possible to do that as opposed to saying like, well, he better get sized up for his orange jumpsuit because, right. you know. And, th- and that would lead to the clapter. The audience will right. love it, but yes. it's not exactly the yeah. best place for your comedy to exist. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some Leeway always when you're making a joke, like ultimately, like if you're trying to land a joke, like that's different than just saying something definitively is going to be the case. But like we definitely as much as possible are trying to resist that temptation. Yeah, yeah. The DNA of this segment is can't exist if it's if it's just, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. Yeah. The whole point and why people value a closer look is it's not just a joke. Totally. Yeah. Since you have a background in news and you worked in news for a long time, is comedy, which you work in now, is that more embracing of nonfiction, of maybe some serious content, than news embraces the comedic? Hmm. Uh, 
Well, I would definitely, I would, I would hope that news would not embrace the comedic. And something that I think was always true, this is, it's not like this is newly true, but it really sort of started to become clear to me during the Trump era was um, people just have a sort of innate uh, BS detector, which is that their sense of humor. Yeah. When something's unusual, your, your, your natural inclination is to find it odd and potentially laugh at it. Um, we've discovered that when we've had, like, for example, guests on the show who have said things that were fundamentally at odds with reality, and we realized the audience laughed at them because that's your natural instinct to do that. Right. And like an improv, for example, what you're essentially doing is you're starting a scene with a scene partner, um, and you start in a normal situation. Something weird happens in the course of that weird situation. The audience kind of laughs. The people in the scene get a sense of, okay, that was weird what just happened. Let me point at how that's weird, explain why it's weird, and then heighten it comedically. Right. And that's essentially what comedy is doing about the news right now and that's why it seems very well equipped for this moment because we all have this instinct that like Trump and the people around him are fundamentally abnormal in certain ways and so our instinct is just to sort of laugh at it and comedy is very good at pointing at it specifically and saying here's why that's unusual and heightening it comedically in a way that explains to you why that's unusual so all jokes are a lie but why don't Trump's lies scan as jokes to his audience well I think to his audience, sometimes they do. I agree with you. That is the right answer. Yes. Because we say, how could, how are there 4,000 Pinocchios amassed? How does Daniel Dale of of, uh, the Toronto Star, how does he have this count? And I would guarantee that half of the things he said, but it's maybe not always the same half, his audience like, oh, we know he was exaggerating. Oh, we know his showmanship. Oh, it was funny. I mean, openly, some of them say in articles, like, for example, that they never expected the wall to get built. Like, you have people chanting, build the wall, but even a lot of those people would probably yeah no we never really that was a wild fantasy like the guy yeah it's what that stands in for that what is important to them but the other big influence in his life wrestling people are chanting you know pile drive him and kill him and that's all artifice also same thing totally and he's totally professed to doing that comedy thing which is that when you try something out in front of an audience and it does well he realizes that it works that's drain the swamp as you know I'm not telling you but if if he wasn't workshopping that in you know yucky Yucks in Peoria or wherever he was playing that time. <laughs> and if it didn't get the reaction, it would have been dropped from the act. He writes on stage. Like By the, the way, there's an said. alternate reality where yeah. Trump only just is a guy who works at Yuck Yucks in Peoria. <laughs> and that alternate reality is one that is very enjoyable to yeah. imagine uh, and probably a much better world to live in. Weirdly, a Toronto Globe columnist named Daniel Dale still goes to every show and counts the lies. It's odd that he would do that well, I to a comedian at Yuck Yucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not getting it, Dale. <laughs> That's right. He's in the audience scribbling. <laughs> you're just not getting this art form. <laughs> do you, after the Closer Look segment is done, Done. Do you watch the rest of the show? Um, well, uh, as soon as the Closer Look segment is done, uh, I usually am then going to go start writing the next one. <laughs> Tomorrow's, <laughs> really? Yes, yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've definitely... So as The Rock is being introduced, you're heading back to your computer. <laughs> and believe me, I would love to be watching The Rock. I would love to. There's nothing would give me more joy to see The Rock uh, talking to Seth. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely been times when Closer Look is over and then I immediately just go back to my computer and start either continue working on the one that I tried to start working on that day already or just start a new one from scratch. Sal Gentile is a writer. Writer, as we've learned, uh, a very important writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. He is the supervisor of the Closer Look segment. This was fascinating. Thanks so much for coming in, Sal. Thank you so much for having me. And now, the spiel.
Cancel Christmas with the cranks. Felicity Huffman got caught trying to get her daughter into a highly respected university via highly illegal methods. Literally giving money to the school and naming an entire library after her family. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm being told that is the totally up and up way to get into an elite university. This isn't this is fraud. This isn't uh, as the U.S. attorney said, this isn't something where somebody wanted to donate a building or make kind of a preemptive donation to the school. Uh, this was outright uh, fraud. Uh, the uh, NBC News, they're reporting that federal agents made an announcement, a big sting, which netted parents a college advisor, quote-unquote, and uh, standardized test proctors and coaches at top universities. There were bribes being paid to get okay kids into very good colleges. And wouldn't you know who else was caught up in this? Yes, heads of industry. Yes, people in the world of fashion. Yes, hedge fund managers. No, not hedge fund managers. Yes, even them. And two actresses. For at least one of these actresses, insult was added to arrest. But the FBI in Boston and the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, is announcing that they are charging Hollywood actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Loffman of Full House uh, in a massive college scandal. Uh, in- Silver lining if you're Felicity Huffman. At least you've got the more varied body of work. They can't just tag you with, oh, that one series you did in the 90s. Lori Loughlin of Full House, really the one show. Are we going to mention the TV movies, one of her own, A Stranger in the Mirror, or Abandoned and Deceived? I think not. But it was a deception that federal agents could not abandon. Indicted were coaches and college officers and clients of William Rick Singer, who ran an outfit called the Key Worldwide Foundation. Fittingly, Singer offered two main services, allegedly, of the Key Foundation. One was the front door whereby he would pay proctors to take a test for the kids. The other was what they call a side door, which he would pay huge bribes, hundreds of thousands. One of his clients paid $6.5 million to figures within college athletic departments. And these figures would get the kids admitted to the schools as athletes. What if the kids weren't athletes and they weren't? No problem. Key Worldwide would Photoshop the children's faces onto actual athletes. It was in this manner that Laurie Loeffner's 16-year-old daughter was seen waving medics onto the field after she viciously sacked Joe Theismann. The indictment reads like an indictment not just of 50 very rich or dishonest or rich and dishonest people, but of society, the sliver of society that has created such pressure and panic over college admissions. Let me quote from some of the indictment. It starts like this. I, Laura Smith, being duly sworn, state as follows. I am a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I hold a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, economic crimes investigation. Okay, but, but from where? From where? and a master's degree in accounting. Okay, but from what school? I need to know the school. Was it a state school? Are we really going to let the graduate of a state school indict Felicity Huffman's offspring? Maybe it's better to hear from the agent uh, in his own words. This is uh, Andrew Lelling of the FBI at the press conference. And that system is a zero-sum game. For every student admitted through fraud, an honest, genuinely talented student was rejected. That's right. What if the hardworking student would say the daughter of uh, John Stamos and Rebecca Romaine or Dave Coulier and whoever married Dave Coulier? Okay, I don't think any of those people have kids. Or how about Daniel Craig and Rachel Weiss? Now I got your attention, don't I? There were other victims too. The scam depended 
on these students who didn't have learning disabilities claiming that they had learning disabilities to take extra time on the test. That is unethical, deeply unethical, and it casts a pall on every legitimately learning disabled test taker. It's also bad for the Jews because the scam depended on rescheduling tests to go to the Houston testing center. And uh, the chief scammer would say, just say you had an out-of-town bat mitzvah. So again, bad for the Jews. Here's what's going on. We live in an affluenza, status-obsessed, anxious age. And the people who commit these crimes, allegedly, should feel all of the shame coming their way. The victims weren't just the legitimate students who lost their spot to the offspring of a rich person paying bribes. The victims were actually the children themselves, the parents so desperate to help the children wound up hurting them, victimizing them even. It struck me that over and over again in the indictment, the workers for Key International would assure their clients, don't worry, your kids will never know that we fake the test for them. Quote, they just have no idea they didn't even get the score they thought they got, which is great. That's the way you want it. They feel good about themselves. You know, it's hard to get into college, but getting into college or a better college, a slightly better college than the college you deserve to get into, will make so little difference in your life. And not just the lives of these people, because they're rich and they have it made anyway. I mean, when Chinese officials or Koreans or a lot of other countries that depend on a robust but sclerotic civil service system, when they pay bribes to get their kids into the best schools, it's because the stakes are really high. The avenues for opportunities in those countries vastly expand or contract depending on if you get into the right school. But in America, people kill themselves to get into USC. And yeah, USC pays a lot. It has an average salary of $74,000 after 10 years. But USF, University of San Francisco, they make an average of $62,000 after 10 years. And by the way, that school doesn't have USC's 17% acceptance rate. It has a 64% acceptance rate. And just because those are the averages, there's a wide range A bunch of people who went to USF do much, much better than people who went to USC. It's really just about prestige and bragging rights and now the commission of crimes. Which brings me to Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner's father committed crimes. Jared Kushner's father paid millions of dollars to get him into Harvard. That was not the crime, but here's what happened. Here's an excerpt from NPR's Embedded podcast. His GPA did not warrant it. His SAT scores did not warrant it. We thought for sure there was no way this was going to happen. Then, lo and behold, Jared was accepted. He was accepted, Daniel Goldman found out, after his father, Charles, pledged a major donation to Harvard. And, you know, I learned that Charles uh, Kushner had given Harvard, had pledged uh, $2.5 million in 1998, which was you know, around the time Jared would have been beginning the college admission process. With that in mind, I found preposterous one statement that was made by the FBI. There can be no separate college admission system for the wealthy, and I'll add that there will not be a separate criminal justice system either. So I guess we've decided that cheating on a test and outright bribing a coach is not fine, but paying millions of dollars to a university is totally kosher. In fact, where would universities be without it? Colleges spend millions of dollars to chase billions of dollars, and I do mean billions. In total, and I have the figures for 2017, higher education institutions raised $43.6 billion in donations. Harvard, which doesn't need the money, raised the most, 1.28. On top of that, 
They had a six and a half billion dollar capital campaign. They wound up raising nine point six billion dollars. Whoops, an extra three billion dollars. By the way, a coalition of Flint residents had to sue the states to get their lead pipes replaced. By the way, a coalition of Flint residents had to sue the state to get their lead pipes replaced. It was two years ago. Still not done. Cost was $87 million. They found it hard to find the money. And the last aspect of this that I want to address is college sports. So for years, I covered college sports. I told you who won the games and who was interesting in sports, but I also covered the issues, what was fair and what was unfair. Was it fair that talented athletes gave services worth millions of dollars to their schools while not getting paid anything? Was it fair that many of the athletes were allowed into academically rigorous schools that were beyond their abilities? Was it fair that these athletes had essentially full-time jobs? Was it fair and right that billion-dollar professional sports leagues turn colleges into training grounds? And then I interviewed a guy named Derek Bach, former president of, yeah, no, Harvard, but smart guy, smart guy, opened my eyes to a simple fact. I was asking questions that were way, way too refined. I needed to zoom out. The problem isn't the comically forced amateurism of the NCAA. The problem is that athletic departments in college overall have such sway. Extracurricular sports are fun. They create school spirit, unless you're like an Emory Eagle, let's say. But there is no pedagogical or educational justification for so valuing sports over the choir, the orchestra, the debate team, the trivia team, the school newspaper. I ended on a little personal flourish there. There's just a financial justification. For every talented athlete who gets into a school, a more talented student might get turned away. You know, there's very little about secondary education that really makes sense. I mean, we have some top colleges, but aside from that, I don't think they really do a great job at education. There's a frantic but false panic that the schools embrace. The actual learning is pretty minimal. Campuses are increasingly becoming hothouses of hurt feelings. Graduates are neither scholars nor the citizens that our society would generally prefer. Graduates are neither scholars nor citizens, as our society would define those terms. Students are leaving with crippling debt. We really should ask, not what's wrong with colleges, but is there much of anything going right? Colleges are supposed to be the most high-minded of our institutions, and I know they've been derided for decades as factories of elitism, but really, If they were conferring elite status on the smartest, most capable students who were learning the most and thinking the hardest, that wouldn't be so bad. Are we selling educations or the stickers for a rear window? A scandal on the front end of the college industrial complex should not be the end of the discussion. It should be the beginning of a different one. The star of Garage Sales Mystery 17 and a few dozen others shouldn't be the only ones we indict. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Now, they each paid $12 to stick their heads in one of those cutouts of a muscle man at the beach in an effort to impress the strength and conditioning coach at UAB. Go Blazers! TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, paid a shady operative named Igor Davoutsky $2,000 to take a BuzzFeed quiz to see which desperate housewife she was. The gist. The scandal is that this not only ruins the magic that was Philium H. Muffman, but it also ruins the excuse that I love to make. Sorry, I have a bat mitzvah in Houston. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>